Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, welcome to our Addiction 101 for Medical Students, which is what we decided to call it. Um, (laughs) Dr. Kara Pullen is joining me again today. And this series has been uh, long in the making. And I I believe the last time we talked to record something, kind of an intro to the whole series was a few months back. But today we are going to talk about pregnancy and addiction stuff. And uh, before we do that, though, Dr. Poland, who is Dr. Poland? I am a board certified and fellowship trained addiction medicine specialist practicing out of Michigan State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I work predominantly clinically with pregnant people with a substance use disorder. So I'm excited to be here. And my um, other hat that I wear is I I'm a medical educator, so I work with um, everyone from medical students to practicing physicians and non-physician healthcare workers as well. Yeah, you you have uh, quite a few hats actually. They can they can look at your LinkedIn, uh, which we'll we'll uh, put a link in the show notes for that. But all right, so today's uh, topics are going to be kind uh, uh, like opiates, nicotine, throwing maybe some alcohol use and marijuana use in pregnancy, drawing on Dr. Pullen's experience. And I think we'll use questions like we usually do um, as a springboard for these topics. So uh, first up, thanks to Amboss for providing these. We've got the first 24 hours after delivery, a 2888 gram, which is 6.4 pounds, male is not feeding well. He has a high-pitched cry and is diaphoretic. He was born 38 weeks gestational age to a 30-year-old multip after an uncomplicated labor and delivery. Apgars were 8 and 9 at 1 and 5 minutes. Uh, the mother had a lack of prenatal care. And medication-wise, she takes codeine frequently uh, uh, for dry cough. The infant's temperature is 37.8, which is 100 Fahrenheit, uh, pulses 165, and blood pressure is 83 over 50. On physical examination, the baby's hyperreflexic, has tremors, and an excessive startle response. The baby's swaddled to prevent excoriations, and fluid resuscitation is initiated. A CBC and serum levels of glucose, bilirubin, and calcium are normal. And the question is, what is the most appropriate next step to treat this newborn? And we've got A, oral morphine therapy, B, oral clonidine, C, intravenous calcium gluconate, or D, therapeutic hypothermia, or D, intravenous ampicillin and gentamicin combination therapy. All right, so Dr. Poland, is this, is this something that uh, people deal with in the labor and delivery suite in the nursery uh, <laughs> when, when a, a mom is suffering from addiction? Absolutely. This is kind of a that high-pitched cry and diaphoretic, I think, on a, on a board exam question should automatically put on your differential opioid withdrawal, that codeine syrup is kind of giving you that slam dunk that that's the uh, diagnosis that they're looking for. I wish always on a question like this, there was an E 
talk to the mother. <laughs> um, somebody who didn't receive prenatal care was probably really scared to come in for prenatal care, possibly because of her substance use. And if that's the case, then we want to make sure that this mom knows that she's going to be taken care of and that her baby's going to be taken care of. So it's one thing to know what medications to start. And it's another thing to know that we need to have kind, compassionate, caring conversations with this mother that are private and then with anybody that she wishes us to um, help her navigate those conversations within her life, whether that's a, a father of the baby, a parent, another support person for her. Now, when we look medically at this baby, we're gonna wanna give the baby oral morphine um, therapy. These are kind of classic symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome, um, again, likely caused by that codeine use. Um, and, you know, they've already done what I like to call the warm cuddles. Um, they've provided the baby with swaddling. Um, we'd also want to um, encourage lots of skin to skin or cuddling from mom, baby knows mom's smell, baby knows mom's heart tones. Those can also help really calm baby. Um, and, and uh, you know, if, if she had been on medication for addiction treatment and not using codeine um, outside of that, we would be encouraging breastfeeding as well. Gotcha. So neonatal abstinence is the diagnosis and oral morphine is the treatment. Let's talk a little bit more about neonatal abstinence and its cause, uh, opiate use disorder in the mom. Is there a difference in neonatal abstinence clinical presentation and course if depending on what opioid the mom is, is addicted to? Yeah, certainly. If mom was taking a short acting opioid, then the course is going to be, it's going to kind of show up in the baby faster than if mom's taking a longer acting opioid. Most, most hospitals in general have a, a kind of five day window of observation for opioid withdrawal so that they can kind of catch the folks that are on longer acting opioids like buprenorphine or methadone, but also, um, you know, catch the babies that need additional treatment from shorter acting opioids as well. So in general, they tend to give about a five day time course for this show, for this kind of coming up. I'm a little concerned about that time course of the first 24 hours after delivery, certainly with a short acting opioid that is reasonable, um, but also within a 24 hour time period, baby could also be withdrawing from other substances. Um, the one that notably comes to mind that's often comorbid in my patient population is tobacco use because that nicotine withdrawal can happen in that 24 hour period. Also, of course, with vaping and, and other methods of obtaining nicotine in mom's system. Okay. So um, you can expect to see an overlap of symptoms uh, with nicotine withdrawal or opiate withdrawal on the baby, or actually too, probably even with like some uh, certain SSRIs as well. Uh, I think we, we see kind of a constellation of symptoms that, that can look similar. Um, is there a way to differentiate them? Hopefully the boards wouldn't do this to like a medical student, uh, uh, real hardcore, like make them differentiate, but um, they could. They could, and they would be very mean if they did. I agree with you. Um, but I think it's really unlikely that they ask people to differentiate between like nicotine and uh, codeine um, in, in this case. Um, ba babies don't have a lot of ways to show they're in distress. Um, so that high-pitched cry um, is often the words that the boards like to use when they're talking about opioid withdrawal. 
Yeah. And uh, I guess now to uh, move into a couple of leading questions. So uh, what can we, is, the, is there something we can do to decrease the intensity or incidence of neonatal abstinence in women who have an opiate use disorder? Yeah, we can get them into treatment, right? This, this, in this case, this mother didn't have treatment, right? Right. So we would want to make sure that we get people into treatment. People in treatment for a substance use disorder during pregnancy have better outcomes. Their babies have shorter lengths of stay in the hospital than babies who are born to moms on unknown um, substances or, or unknown quantities and, and frequencies, uh, such as it appears in this case. Um, certainly getting people into treatment also allows us as, as doctors to have those conversations with our patients. So when she comes into the hospital, she knows what to expect. Um, we know that young children, including newborns, get their emotional tenor from mom. So if mom knows that baby's at risk for neonatal abstinence syndrome and what treatment of neonatal abstinence syndrome looks like and what that monitoring looks like during her pregnancy, um, maybe has an opportunity to meet with an, uh, a, a neonatologist or a pediatrician to kind of ask any questions she has of them, then she comes in with that knowledge and knowledge is power, right? Um, and so now she knows what to expect when, when she delivers this baby. She's calmer, baby's calmer, baby's less likely to get agitated. If baby does get physiologically agitated, mom knows some of these tools to help soothe baby. And so they're more likely to not need pharmacologic treatment uh, with that oral morphine, if they've had, um, if mom's been prepared and, and any other caregivers, moms, dads, uh, whoever mom's support person might be. And that probably is really why uh, we we treat in general, because I think, you know, you, you learn in med school that you know, pretty much uh, opioid withdrawal is not life-threatening. So, but like the thought of being like, deal with it, baby. Um, is is not exactly a palatable thing, I think, just as a knee-jerk response. Um, but the the point of of treating mom and trying to decrease uh, the infant's experience of neonatal abstinence syndrome is to ensure that emotional development and uh, safety of of the baby's kind of, uh, I guess. Uh, early neurologic uh, uh, connection building uh, that, that is so necessary and opportune in that first, like, uh, well, really the first, the whole infancy period, but probably especially in the, the first couple of weeks. And, and so I guess what you're in summary saying is like this treating the or trying to prevent neonatal abstinence by treating the mom and then treating neonatal abstinence when it shows up in the baby um, is, is really trying to enhance the maternal infant bond um, and all the good we know that comes from that in terms of uh, critical development for a child. Is that a good summary, I guess? I think that's a great summary. The other thing is we don't want to discount the power of dads. Um, and other primary. That is true. I will second that. So what we, we they, they've done studies of, of newborns, right? At about two weeks old, they have, you know, neck control, right? And so they put babies, you know, they've laid babies down and they've had like dad and random dude on opposite side of baby and had dad and random dude talk and baby will actually at two weeks old, turn their head toward their dad. Interesting. 
So even though like there's this, we know there's this connection with mom, we know that babies kind of calm down faster for mom. There truly is a baby does have that connection to dad. And the more people that we have, not only supporting that mother infant, but also that family unit, I think the the better off we are as a community. Yeah. Appreciate you mentioning that uh, as a dad to four kids. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So a few other uh, issues with opiates and pregnancy. One of the things you you hear um, with respect to med- medication assisted treatment in pregnancy is that whoa 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 it's not medication assisted treatment it's medication for addiction treatment medication for addiction treatment there we go and and actually since you're making that point what why why is that distinction important because medication doesn't assist the treatment medication is treatment there you go medication is integral to treatment and when we call it medication assisted treatment we minimize the importance of medication and our studies really show that medication is a necessary component um, at least to be offered to all patients obviously i'm not going to be at somebody's house forcing them to take their medication every day um, but making sure that pe- all people with a substance use disorder have access to medication is really important Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> and we have, a, we did a, uh, uh, in this series, there's a, a section on the language of, of addiction. So that's worth looking up. And we kind of talk about that a little bit more in detail. But um, to return to that question, is it safe to withdraw from an opiate during pregnancy? In general, yes. We know that. Oh, for, for the fetus, sorry. For the fetus. In general, yes. Um, we know that baby's nervous system isn't really developed to be able to feel withdrawal until the third trimester. So there is some concern that there might be some fetal distress during the third trimester in which we might want to put mom onto a monitor if we're going to um, be withdrawing her during that later parts of pregnancy. And is, you know, uh, pursuing an abstinence strategy or a, a weaning off medication uh, for uh, their opiate use disorder treatments, as some women want to do. I guess, can you just comment on that? Just Dr. Beeman, you said the key words, as some women want to do. Right. If a patient's sitting in front of you saying, I want to wean off of this medication, then our job as the physician is to say, these are the risks and benefits of choosing to do that. If it's not successful, because we know many people who try to wean off of these medications are not successful, I want you to know that I'm still here to provide you care, regardless of whether or not you need medication appropriately for to treat your substance use disorder or not. What do you tell a woman who comes in and is like, uh, you know, I found out I'm pregnant. I have been stable on, let's say, methadone for Three years. Um, last time I used uh, heroin was, you know, two and a half years ago or something. I, I want to get off methadone. What What would you tell her? First, I want to ask her a little bit about why. But once we kind of have that conversation, then I ask if I can share what some of the information is that I know because my role is as as your physician is to share my medical knowledge with you so we can make the best decisions in your life. And no matter what route we go, staying on the medication or stopping the medication, I want you to know that I want to continue to be your physician throughout your pregnancy and into the postpartum period, um, regardless of if you're on medication or not. And just ask permission to share some of the data with them. And I, I, I say things like, 
I, I want to share the data because statistics have meaning, but you're not a statistic. We need to figure out what it actually would look like in your life. And if she's like, well, I just don't know what to do. I'm, I don't want to be on any medication during pregnancy. Uh, uh, how would you respond to that? Uh, laying out those risk and benefit considerations. I tell them that the benefit is certainly there. And if you were my family member, I would be telling you that I highly recommend you stay on the medication. And what can I expect then when my baby's born? Let's say I um, continue on my methadone. What happens when my baby's born? Is, is baby going to have, is baby going to be sick and withdraw? So there is a risk that baby might have neonatal, something called neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is when babies withdraw from substances. However, nobody at my hospital is really excited about baby torture. And we know that withdrawal doesn't feel good because it doesn't. And so if baby does need withdrawal treatment, we provide them with withdrawal treatment. And what that looks like is in the early stages of withdrawal, if baby has withdrawal, and not all babies have withdrawal, I call warm cuddle stages. And then I go through kind of what that means. What are some of these environmental things we do? And then I talk about if baby then still needs medication, if medication is appropriate for that child, then we will give your baby medication. And we use literally droplets of morphine, tincture of morphine in order to treat that baby. So we give them as little as we can to keep them comfortable And if baby does need medication, then they'll be monitored to make sure that they're comfortable, feeling well, but also not given too much medication. And when we look at these babies out to 36 months of age, their brain development is not different than a baby who was born to a mom not on medication for a substance use disorder. That's good. Uh, yeah, that's good. I, that, that was the response I got recently was, oh, really? When um, saying like not all babies withdraw because the experience of a lot of people who suffer from an opiate use disorder is, uh, I mean, withdraw, the, the, how terrible that is, is what drives their continued use um, to a large degree. And yeah, no parent wants that for their kid. And that's a sign that this parent is trying to be a good parent, right? Yeah, which... They don't want their child suffering. Exactly. And that's, uh, I would say that's the majority of women who ha- who suffer from addictions in, in pregnancy. I, I just, you know, it, it, that's the case. There, there is a conflict in, internally often. Um, and part of it is driven by that maternal instinct and... We need to be treating that and enabling women to get better rather than just be so afraid they're going to be punished for having this problem uh, uh, throughout their pregnancy and, and certainly when the baby's born. So, all right, let's say a patient comes in with a history of heroin use and they're like, I want treatment. And you do a pregnancy test in the office before you see them and it's positive and you go into the room and, and what's your conversation if say she's eight weeks along, just found out she's pregnant today and uh, is coming to you for her substance use treatment? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a 
tough one, right? I mean, there pe- people are kind of in shock if they weren't trying and weren't expecting to become pregnant. I've been there. Uh, so it, it is a, it is a hard, um, that, that alone is a hard conversation is a conversation to be had. <laughs> All right, fine. Let's, let's switch it up then. Let's take that out. Cause that, that is true. Actually. Now I'm, I'm thinking of the times I've been like, Oh, so You're pregnant. I have some news for you. Uh, you try to like, gauge on- <laughs> Happens, right? But yeah, 100%. that's one piece of the conversation. But, you know, even if, if she did or didn't know she was pregnant before she walked in for treatment, it doesn't matter. She should be offered treatment. And it's just at that point about figuring out what is the right, you know, dose of treatment. Is is she interested in, an, is she interested in, you know, an abstinence-based program? Is she interested in buprenorphine? Is she interested in methadone? What's realistic in her life? And, and, that conversation isn't distinctly different during pregnancy than it is during a non-pregnant for a non-pregnant person with the exception of we don't really use naltrexone very much in pregnancy. And certainly if she's just discovering she's pregnant and not on medication, um, most, most doctors wouldn't, would not offer her naltrexone. So that's straight up, um, naltrexone, but you've got naloxone and buprenorphine as a combination product, most commonly known as uh, the trade name Suboxone. Um, Suboxone and methadone are two uh, treatment options for an opiate use disorder. And um, in pregnancy, is, is there a contraindication to using buprenorphine and naloxone in combination? Is that a concern that should be there? It is certainly a concern sometimes um, in people's heads. Um, so it was a hypothetical risk um, that the naloxone might get to baby and precipitate withdrawal in baby. But when they've they, they've actually done the study where they're in a small number of patients, but they actually did cord blood sampling to look for naloxone presence in the cord blood. And frankly, it wasn't there or it was in such small amounts that it wouldn't be physiologically active in the baby. When the reason it's in there, right, is because um, if somebody misuses this medication by melting it and injecting it, it can either attenuate the response to the buprenorphine or precipitate some withdrawal if there's already another full agonist in the brain. But when taken sublingually, naloxone undergoes first pass metabolism. So it doesn't really get into the body in significant amounts and is not effective. Ah, so when people have precipitated withdrawal, I think it's important to distinguish then the reason why if they take, say, buprenorphine, naloxone in combination when um, they have heroin on board or another uh, opioid, it's, it's because the buprenorphine displaces the other opioid that's a full agonist, um, and it's not the naloxone that knocks off the uh, full opioid agonist from the receptors, correct? Not when taken sublingually, but if injected, then both the buprenorphine has an effect and the naloxone can have an effect in terms of precipitating withdrawal. Yeah, and I'm trying to draw out the, uh, because some people might know there's a buprenorphine monoproduct, and uh, a lot of doctors will only give that in pregnancy, but do you you guys give Suboxone to a pregnant patient? We give the combination product to pregnant patients in my clinic, and I think most people that have more experience with pregnant women are now prescribing that combination product in general. The other option is methadone, and and we've, you know, we've talked about that in other opiates uh, lectures or discussions in in this series. So I 
there's probably not much really different as far as methadone and pregnancy goes, except as you get into the mid trimester period, they, they can chew up their methadone dose a lot more quickly. So pregnant women often need to have their dose raised pretty often. And, and actually because the pharma pharmacological properties often need to split, well, not often, but sometimes need to split their dose um, twice a day rather than once a day, which is how most methadone is administered in an addiction treatment context. Same thing with buprenorphine. Sometimes we need to increase the frequency of the buprenorphine during pregnancy. Oh, right. But interestingly, it's not often the dose doesn't need to be increased, just the dividing it up more frequently. Yeah. So the total daily dose stays the same. Am I making sense? You are making sense. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, and I can't easily explain that. Um, I, I mean, I know how it works uh, in, in theory, but I, I will... I will stumble over trying to explain that in a way that will be helpful. Uh, but yeah, basically the, you know, split the dose 12 hours apart rather than 24, uh, sometimes in pregnancy. Do you do that routinely or? Um, if the person comes in and is having some form of symptoms around it, most of my patients are already on BID dosing. So they're usually taking their medication twice a day already. Um, and we start to get worried about taking it more than that because it just becomes harder to be compliant with the medication. And also if you're taking it more, more than twice a day, it's starting to look more like what they might've done with their heroin use or, or other opioid use, um, in their substance use disorder. And that can kind of do weird things to the unconscious areas of the brain and make it, and make it harder. So we tend to try to stay at twice a day dosing. Sometimes we go to three times a day dosing if the person is is really looking like they're they're going into some form of objective withdrawal signs be, uh, in between their doses. Okay, gotcha. And I know your your time is short here today, but um, can you offer before leaving um, any perspective on peak and trough levels of methadone in addiction treatment during pregnancy? Sometimes what we do is we is we split that dose in order to prevent them from, from their trough from going so low that it's subtherapeutic. Um, and we don't want that to happen because we don't want mom to go into withdrawal and to feel cruddy because they know how to fix that. And you fix that by using another opioid, which is counterproductive uh, to being in addiction treatment. So sometimes we need to keep them from going down, dipping down into that subtherapeutic level. Um, and so that requires us to split the dose and maybe dose increase during pregnancy. Gotcha. Do you have to do that often or can you just like follow clinical symptoms of withdrawal? You just follow their clinical symptoms and see what they're, um, what they're doing. And sometimes it's good to do an assessment uh, just before they have their methadone dose in the methadone clinic. So you can kind of see a little bit objectively what they're doing. With opioids, your body never becomes tolerant to the pupillary effects. So I'm constantly asking my learners to look at the pupils because you can actually tell if somebody's in withdrawal best by looking at their pupils if you're looking for an objective sign that's easy for us to kind of see. Gotcha. Much appreciated. Awesome. I think we hit all the topics pretty good there for opiates in pregnancy. Um, all right. So these questions are from Stat Pearls. And first up, uh, in or I guess first to say, we want to kind of discuss alcohol and uh, marijuana and maybe touch on 
sympathomimetics of some sort, like cocaine or meth, see how much we can do in uh, like 20, 30 minutes. Uh, first up, female baby born to a mother, 36 weeks gestational age via spontaneous vaginal delivery. The mother had received regular prenatal care, but reports that during most of her pregnancy, she drank beer in an attempt to medicate her depression. What is the most likely mechanism of central nervous system damage that occurred in the baby? So we have A, enhancement of GABA B receptors, B, increased chloride influx into interneurons, uh, C, decreased stimulation of interneurons, D, increased glutamate exocytosis. There's a lot of $10 words in there. I know. That's like a mean question, I feel like. Right. Yeah. So, and then why are you doing this to me? First, <laughs> so if there are first years listening, then, you know, just have them, you know, Google all the, the terms here. Uh, <laughs> but all right. So most likely to rephrase this, it's basically we're looking at a baby who has most likely fetal alcohol uh, spectrum disorder. And the question is, what is the mechanism of CNS damage that would occur in a baby like that? So it's the mechanism of uh, the pathophysiology of alcohol or ethanol on the central nervous system in the developing fetus. So it's giving me a doozy. I'm a clinician, man. I'm a clinician. Okay. So I'll do my best. Help me out when I need it. All right. Um, so GABA is inhibitory in mature interneurons, but it's one of those ones that flips over. And in developing interneurons, such as during prenatal development, GABA is actually excitatory. So in immature neurons, GABA is excitatory, and it's because of a high concentration of intracellular chloride. So that high intracellular chloride concentration is maintained by a sodium potassium chloride co-transporter one, which brings the chloride ions into the immature interneuron. And as the neurons mature, the activity of that sodium potassium chloride co-transporter decreases. So the amount of active chloride extruding potassium chloride co-transporter two increases, and that flips it to send the chloride out of the neuron. So eventually then GABA switches from excitatory to inhibitory when the concentration of intracellular chloride is low enough. So alcohol or ethanol, which is what's been exogenously introduced into this baby, um, is a GABA-A receptor agonist. Um, and when it's activated, the GABA-A causes an influx of chloride ions into the neuron. And as a tritogen, the ethanol binds to GABA-A in that immature neuron, causing the intracellular chloride ion level to increase. So it increases the influx interneurons inter um, of that chloride. And because excited, GABA is excitatory in those immature neurons, excitotoxicity and subsequent death of the immature neuron occurs, which leads to that kind of syndrome that we see um, as fetal alcohol syndrome. So that that's fun, all of that. I, I love the concept of, of excitatory neurotoxicity 
uh, that we see with, uh, uh, I guess, GABA and like uh, glutamates or... I don't know that they would, like you said, this is this is a mean question. This this level of question may be even for like experts, um, not necessarily your step one, step two, the USMLE, but it gives us a jumping off point for fetal alcohol syndrome. So what I would say is the the important things to know about FAS from a testing perspective are to remember kind of the morphologic, the the phenotype that, that has certain hallmarks. So the big one would be, I would say, the shortened palpebral fissures, the smooth philtrum, and especially, I would say, the thin vermilion border at the uh, lip and subnasal skin. I don't, I don't know what I'd call that, but you know, the, the transition from lip skin to regular skin for, for those who uh, don't know what the vermilion border is yet. So those are the kind of characteristic morphological findings you see with fetal alcohol syndrome. And then related to FAS and its differential, fetal alcohol syndrome is the most common cause of intellectual disability, which means don't confuse this with the tangentially essential knowledge of fragile X syndrome being the most common inherited cause of intellectual disability and trisomy 21 being the most common cause of chromosomal intellectual disability. So there's a couple things just to hold on to for testing purposes, but for real life purposes, we turn back to Dr. Kara Poland. What, what can be said about um, alcohol use or is worth knowing about alcohol use in pregnancy and caring for uh, patients who are dealing with that? I think it's really interesting in this case that they say that she received prenatal care but continued to drink beer. Um, I think one thing that we want to do as doctors is we want to make sure we are appropriately screening our patients and creating an environment that is non-judgmental where they feel like they can share with us things like I'm drinking beer um, during my pregnancy, because I think most people know that that's not a great idea and that has risks for their baby. Um, But there's also so much judgment and stigma around substance use in pregnancy. Um, Well, there's, there's stigma with substance use, and then there's stigma with substance use in pregnancy that goes kind of above and beyond that. Um, and, and really, as a, as a doctor, what you want to be able to do is create an environment where your patients feel that they can share with you if they're struggling with substance use during, during their pregnancy. And I think recognizing that that takes a lot of strength from people to, to, be able to, rec- to be able to come in and say, hey, I'm using substances during pregnancy is really important. I know when I see a pregnant person for the first time, one of the things I say to them is just thank you for for being brave and trusting enough to come in to see me because that was probably really hard to do. Yeah, totally. You know, what's crazy about alcohol use and and pregnancy? I have, I don't know, probably at this point delivered at least a thousand babies. I don't know, but really I can only think of two and, you know, this isn't even just the, that's just the delivery is that doesn't take into account all the prenatal care, but I I can really only think of two people who have admitted or brought up or otherwise indicated on their own initiatives that they were using alcohol in pregnancy in a risky sense. 
it has to be more than that because uh, at-risk alcohol use um, is certainly much more prevalent than you know one in five hundred plus uh, people. Um, certainly, a lot of women will come in and I don't want to say be freaked out, but that is a colloquial, colloquial uh, way of of saying it. Um, they'll be freaked out because they found out they were pregnant, but like for the past three weeks, they've, um, each weekend gone and had, you know, uh, out with their friends They had a bachelorette party, the kind of classic, you know, story. Um, and they're like, Oh my gosh, am I going to like ruin my baby? Um, and for the most part in general with field development, if it's before like eight ish weeks, gestational age, it's kind of hard to do major malformations of, uh, the baby's like organ systems uh, through the use of substances. It's kind of like, uh, or excuse me, before two weeks, sorry. Uh, before like two weeks, um, it, it's like not impossible, but it's difficult to cause a baby to be malformed through the introduction of um, teratogenic substances. More likely, if there is a substance that is going to harm uh, the pregnancy, it's it's going to result in um, a, a miscarriage or a subclinical, um, I guess, pregnancy loss that, uh, but at any rate, um, I usually just tell women like, nah, don't worry about it. You're good. That's fine. Just don't do it anymore. And they're like, okay, cool. Cause, cause I would say most, most women are pretty motivated to, to decrease substance use during pregnancy, but I don't know, just what are your thoughts and experience with alcohol and pregnancy, alcohol use disorder in pregnancy. I just, I don't, I don't know if I recognize it enough or if I don't, you know, doing a bad job. I'm not sure. You know, most people are pretty motivated in pregnancy period. Right. Like I, I, I tell people all the time, I, I have yet to find somebody, a pregnant person who doesn't want to try to change something in their life to improve the outcome of that child. Right. So, so we see that we see that we even see that with the non-pregnant partner uh, of that person, right? Like that they'll make lifestyle changes to support, to support, you know, improved outcomes. So I think that that's kind of a universal. And if we can, if we can normalize, you know, we can use that as a, as a normalization, you know, you know, piece to make it, okay. So your thing is alcohol use, Um, you know, that, I, I drank a lot. I drank a lot of Diet Coke <laughs> and I didn't drink Diet Coke when I was pregnant. And like, that was, that was one of many things that I changed when I was pregnant to, you know, and I definitely drink Diet Coke today um, now that I'm not pregnant. Right? <laughs> um, and so we, we see that's kind of a normal part of, of pregnancy. So sometimes normalizing some of that is helpful. Um, I think universally we could do better with screening during pregnancy. The United States Preventative Services Task Force um, has said that screening in pregnancy is likely helpful. Screening in, screening in people who are over 18 is helpful. And screening in um, adolescents between 12 and 18, it's a little bit unknown. One of the drawbacks is there's all these screening tools. So they're all different and none have been studied like in, uh, they've all been in two or three different studies. And so it's hard to know which is the best screening tool. There are some that are specific to pregnancy. And I think if we can start by just normalizing it by universally screening people using validated tools, 
that's the best place to start. How about this? I, I'm proud to say I've been told I have honorary ovaries because of being an OBGYN. And therefore, what if I came to you, um, how would you do a screening if, if I were the pregnant lady? I'm like, hey, Dr. Pol- uh, Poland, nice to meet you. Um, what's up? I would not say you don't use substances, do you? Okay. So that's good. <laughs> because that clearly has a right answer, right? right and, yeah. and sometimes when people haven't been trained, that's what they do. Yeah. With alcohol in specific, I personally like the single item alcohol screening tool, which is do you sometimes use beer, wine, or other alcoholic beverages? Oh, yeah, of course I do. Okay, so then I would want to follow that up, right? So we're going to say, um, when was the last time you had a drink? Uh, honestly, last night. Okay, what what was it? A white claw. <laughs> okay. Are we pregnant right now? Uh, I don't know. Look at my test over there. I know I had to give a urine sample when I came in to, for this appointment. <laughs> that was supposed to be a background question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, I just found out I was pregnant. I don't know. I must be 12 weeks along. Okay. Well, we know that there are some risks to drinking during pregnancy. Um, how confident are you on a scale of one to 10 that you might be able to um, cut back or stop drinking on a regular basis? I know I shouldn't, but every time I try to quit, I get, I get the shakes, you know, yeah. But I don't know, about a day after, maybe a little bit less than when I drink. I, I just, I, I got to take something so I'm not like real anxious, worked up and shaky and I just feel crappy. Yeah, that's really hard. I'm really sorry. That doesn't, that sounds like it's kind of miserable, isn't it? Yeah. Are you interested in... <laughs> I'm a terrible actor. We have, it's okay. Um, we have, you know, we have some treatment for people who have, who want to cut back on their alcohol use. Is that something you might be interested in? Yes, that is something. What, what do you mean? I didn't know that. Sure. Why don't, why don't we talk about that? Well, now that you're pregnant, you kind of get a free pass to the front of the line. So we can work with you to make sure that we keep you and your baby safe and provide you with um, medications to help support you um, in your brain and kind of that detox period when you stop drinking so that we keep you safe and we keep your baby safe. Um, and then we can talk about what sorts of medications are available um, longer term uh, to support you during your pregnancy and beyond um, in terms of decreasing and maybe even eliminating that alcohol use. We know there's not only risks during pregnancy, but risks um, in, in for general health, whether or not you're pregnant. So maybe that's something that we can work on together during your pregnancy and beyond. Yeah, sign me up. Woohoo! <laughs> so does it usually go like that? No, not really. <laughs> no, not. But, but here's the thing. People are really motivated during pregnancy. So if there's a time to hook them, often pregnancy it's then, yeah. is time to try, right? Totally. And if and asking, I did a lot of somewhat close-ended questions. That was bad. Um, but doing, you know, a little bit more you know, letting them tell you what's going on, what do they drink, how often do they drink, what is it, you know, trying to get some of that information is great, but also just understanding where it, how it fits into their life and how they're feeling um, and, and what might be reasons that they want to discontinue use, right? Like it's that whole motivational interviewing thing yep. um, and, and just trying to 
figure out where that person is. What you don't want to do is you don't want to scare her away from prenatal care. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, I will second that. Two things. One, uh, can you talk about SBIRT? And two, what are the medication options for uh, alcohol use disorder in pregnancy? Because I know we don't really want to give, you know, naltrexone injections in the context of opiate use disorders, but that's pretty much, I think, only because they haven't been extensively studied. Well, and at the end, naltrexone is an opioid blocker and at the end of pregnancy is labor and delivery. Right. And And 90, yeah. So we got to be careful, right? We got to just be careful. So if you're going to start naltrexone during pregnancy, then you have to have an exit plan for toward the end of pregnancy. And for that reason, we often reach for a campersate during pregnancy, um, which is the kind of other FDA-approved medication. In non-pregnant people, we often reach for naltrexone first, and that's mostly because it's either a once-a-day medication or a month-long injection. So it's just easier, easier. from a compliance standpoint, um, whereas a campersate is three times a day medication, and that's just a pain on the neck. But if you're going to forget, the fewer times you have to remember to take the medication, the more likely anyone is to remember it, right? And when you add in, I swear, when you add in that middle of the day dose, like... That one's tough. All bets are off because you just get busy, right? Like you just get busy with life. Absolutely. So I can't proceed often is kind of pulled off the shelf second. Um, naltrexone is metabolized by the liver, so if you have a if you have like a case on boards and they're giving you AST ALT and they're asking you about alcohol use, you're gonna want to know what those levels are because they're meaningful um, in terms of in terms of that. And then um, a camper seed is excreted by the kidneys, so you'll want to make sure if that information's on the question, they might be trying to get you to differentiate between. Um, a campersate and naltrexone. But in pregnancy, we tend to pull a campersate off the shelf um, faster. Um, it's also important to know that with either one of those medications, you can absolutely, the patient does not have to not drink at all. They can continue to be drinking. Um, and you know, As opposed to something else? That was a leading question. As opposed to disulfiram, which we hardly use clinically, but it shows up on every single board exam. So know your health. Right. I've, I've never seen a patient on disulfiram <laughs> ever. I've seen it. Like not once. The studies are, the studies show that it's not really effective unless the person is daily observed therapy because with disulfiram is the one that blocks the metabolism of alcohol. Um, and, and it causes them to build up acetaldehyde. And so then that's what causes the flushing, the nausea, the, you know, alcohol intoxication that, that people can have. It's the same thing that causes people to, um, when, when, you're, when you're, somebody's drinking to like vomit and feel sick if they've had too much alcohol, same thing. Um, so that acetaldehyde buildup happens really fast for somebody who's on disulfiram, but it's super short acting. So if somebody wants to drink, they just have to stop even as little as 24, but most people will not take two doses and then drink the next day. Interesting. Okay. So you got, so, so if you don't have somebody kind of monitoring your intake of the medication, sometimes you don't take, if you don't take it, you don't have a negative effect. Right. That makes sense. So basically three medications to treat an alcohol use disorder, 
officially at least, um, disulfiram, which is more of like a theoretical boards type drug um, that's worth knowing about mainly for board exam purposes and the reference to disulfiram-like reactions that occur with many drugs. Uh, but the other two practically that are used in general for alcohol use disorder, naltrexone, metabolized by the liver. So liver compromise, alcohol use disorder, what to treat on the boards, uh, not naltrexone. And then the third one is acamprosate, which you said is metabolized by the kidney. So kidney compromise, alcohol use disorder on the boards, avoid acamprosate. Is that pretty good? That's perfect. All right. I don't know if they would do, they, they probably could do some, I think with alcohol and the boards, probably fetal alcohol syndrome is going to be a focus of, um, that portion of, of testing and probably should be as far as the uh, education goes, uh, undergraduate medical education. And then, and then the other topics are going to be like withdrawal, intoxication, probably some mechanism of uh, drugs uh, used to treat uh, alcohol use disorder, probably methanol poisoning that, that shows up. That's worth knowing. Probably a few other things. But if you look at the board blueprint, it does really focus on intoxication and withdrawal syndromes and how to treat them. Yes. Ooh, zero order connect. Alcohol zero, yes. That it is kind of the uh, that's a... the poster child for that in, in boards. And then the other claim to fame is uh buprenorphine. I know that's opioid, but um the other claim to fame in addiction in terms of kind of that toxicology stuff is buprenorphine is the partial agonist example in most board review yeah. materials. Well, there you go. There's there's everyone's assignment <laughs> for step one, step two, or step three. Those are the high yield things, and I'm pretty sure, like I'm pretty sure, the mechanism of action of disulfiram has been on every single board exam I've taken oh, yeah. from step one right through addiction specialty boards. No comments because I don't know how useful that is uh, that we're testing that, but whatevs. Um, yeah, but now they know. But now we know that we need to know it. Yes, exactly. So now you have free question. It yeah, exactly. Free, question. Free, free point. Free point there. All right, let's let's move from alcohol and go to a, another substance. So in this question, we have a 28-year-old uh, G3P2 at 14 weeks estimated gestational age who presents to the emergency department with intractable nausea and vomiting. She has no significant past medical history. She denies a history of trauma, is not sexually active, and has no recent hospitalizations, travel, or antibiotic usage. She admits to minimal alcohol usage and daily marijuana use for the past three years. On physical exam, she's uncomfortable, actively retching, has dry mucous membranes, and a soft, non-tender abdomen with normal active bowel sounds, basic metabolic profile, is within normal limits. She's given some IV fluids and on Dancitron with minimal improvement in her symptoms. In addition, she's given metoclopramide, but the patient still continues to have vomiting. She is found in the shower for most of her admission saying the only thing that helps her nausea is a hot shower. What is the next best step in the management of this patient? Is it A, apply an involuntary psychiatric hold on the patient for assessment? 
B, provide substance abuse counseling and discharge the patient with a prescription for capsaicin, topical cream. C, refer the patient to gastroenterology for endoscopy and colonoscopy. Or D, immediate consult to a general surgeon for a concern for a perforated viscous. This question's okay, dude. When I'm throwing up, I don't want a hot shower. Right? That sounds terrible. Give me a cold one any day. Absolutely. So that's kind of the key to this question, right? We want we are looking for what causes somebody who's vomiting to want a hot shower. And that is most commonly seen with marijuana use. So it's a good question to have in the back of your head head, um, for when you're seeing patients in terms of if uh, particularly around pregnancy and kind of that differential diagnosis of are they vomiting because of the pregnancy or are they vomiting because of their marijuana use? Um, Michigan, where I am, is a recreational marijuana state now. And so we are definitely seeing more of it in pregnancy um, and that, uh, so we are seeing more of this as well. So it's it's kind of that flip of wanting to have hot instead of cold uh, while vomiting is a good indicator that it is a marijuana use concern. She's not really eligible for an involuntary psychiatric cold uh, because she does not express being a risk uh, to harm herself. And the other ones are less likely given the warm shower. Yeah, she doesn't. She definitely doesn't need a general surgeon. I'm not too concerned about a perforated viscous. Um, so I'd say answer choice B is correctly scored one or would be the provide substance abuse counseling and discharge the patient with a prescription for capsaicin topical cream. I'll be honest, looking at this question, um, the addition of discharge the patient with a prescription for capsaicin topical cream would have given me pause if I were taking the exam. So I'd be like, huh, I don't know anything about that, frankly. C is refer the patient to a gastroenterologist for endoscopy. Not going to lie, that happens a lot in this situation still. But the appropriate thing to do is to be like, hey, your marijuana use is probably causing this. So uh, provide providing that substance abuse counseling uh, to the patient is going to be the, the next best step in management. Um, and just you know, to break this down, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome versus hyperemesis gravidarum or any other hyperemetic state, that hot shower, super specific for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So on the boards, you see that score, you know, choose cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, move on. Are there other names for this? Like, I don't know of any others. Yeah, I think the boards take a long time to put newly recognized clinical entities or categorized entities or um, to change classifications and taxonomies, for instance, with, you know, new, new updates to like a DSM. But, uh, but I could see this getting on to um, your, your step two, step three um, level exam. Uh, at, if not now, then, then soon. So it's worth knowing about. Uh, but yeah, tell, tell me about because marijuana is such a hot topic in medicine right now, yeah. it's more likely to get on there faster than maybe it would have if it wasn't such a hot topic. That's true. Yeah. Um, well, well, tell me about cannabis hyperemesis. So what, what's this look like? 
doesn't marijuana help with nausea? Like if I have cancer um, and I get a recommendation from a physician to help with my pain and my nausea uh, for for marijuana, that's that's like a pretty common situation, I would say, uh, to hear patients talk about. So what? Cannabis hyperemesis? Doesn't make sense. It's that chronic use of marijuana over time that results in the hyperemesis. It's sort of like the marijuana helps with my anxiety, except when it doesn't and it causes more anxiety. That's kind of the best way to look at it. Yeah. And that's so, that's so good to just, you mentioned that like I, the most common, this is a little bit tangential, but still somewhat relevant. Uh, benzos. Benzos are the only thing that help with my anxiety. Uh, well, okay. Um, benzos are great for anxiety, but you know, so alcohol can be, you know, a, an anxiolytic, you know, have a rough week at work, Friday night, have a beer, you feel more relaxed, start having a beer or two or three a day <laughs> chronically. Now you have to do that or you're going to get anxious. So you can't get off it, you withdraw, you get anxious. Same thing with like benzos and it's it's the chronicity of, of use uh, that really induces uh, some of these problems. And, uh, you know, this happens a lot in medicine. Well, maybe not a lot, but... But uh, medication use headaches, that concept always blew my mind. Like you take ibuprofen chronically. Now the ibuprofen you were taking for your headaches is causing your headaches. Like it seems unfair. It is unfair. And it's really hard for patients to understand, right? Because they're like, no, I take the Motrin for my headache, doctor. Right. No, I use the marijuana for the nausea. And we kind of sound crazy when we tell them that that's not true anymore. Right. So it's a really hard conversation to have with patients. And you're right to kind of phrase that. I liked the way you phrased it, that if you do it over time, your body kind of becomes used to it and adjusts to it. And now you kind of get that rebound negative effect when you don't have it. Um, and so that that's a really difficult conversation to have with patients and a really difficult concept for patients. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a patient like this, like just a, a few weeks ago. And I mean, this, she literally was in the shower all day. Like she'd get out for like five minutes. She, uh, she looks so miserable and, you know, gave her Zofran, gave her, uh, or gave her ondansetron, gave her metoclopramide, tried some promethazine, you know, the, the works and nothing really helped. Nothing really helped her. And so, you know, I talked to her about, you know, I think it's, I think it's the marijuana you're using. And she, she swore she had not used in, in any marijuana in like three weeks. So I was hoping it would be like, oh, okay, cool. I'll stop using marijuana. But then she's like, well, I haven't used any in like two or three weeks. And I was like, oh, um, well, just wait longer. Now, I, I like didn't know what to say, uh, you know, like, because <laughs> typically. But you were right. Just wait longer, right? The marijuana is still in her system. It's still working its way out. It can take. 30 to 45 days for marijuana to work its way out of your system. Do you know, is it, is it typical for cannabis hyperemesis, like a timeline for improvement with cessation of three weeks? I would think it would be getting better, but yeah, you know, she might, she might also still be, I, I, sometimes when people, 
too embarrassed or worried to admit. Yeah, or they say, I, you know, I've really cut back and they're still getting that like spike of intoxication and and they're kind of perpetuating it. I had, I had a patient like that just just last week where I was like, well, I'm, I'm really glad you've cut back on your marijuana use. However, <laughs> um, this isn't dose dependent, unfortunately. So it's unlikely to get better. And then that person is actually has uh, two. So she's got twins in there. And so she's like, well, it's because I have twins. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, not at 32 weeks. It's not, it's not is that first trimester nausea that's worse because you have twins at 32 weeks. But, you know, yeah. those are really hard conversations to have with patients. Yeah, because you, you want them to recognize. I mean, it's like, I mean, any habit. Like, I, I was, you know, I will admit, I was dependent on nicotine for a while. And it took me the standard 10 times to actually quit using nicotine. Why? Because of the withdrawal syndrome. And the the headache and the the craving that was it's tough and I'm like man I having to having to give up anything that you're used to doing just psychologically like it's a part of your you know you have psychological uh, entrapments or whatever that that keep it going like reaching for the the vape or whatever um, and putting it you know puffing on it that's hard in and itself. But then, you know, the, I have a good experience with this, you know, that feeling of, I enjoy this, or I enjoyed it at one point, or, you know, how can it be causing, you know, a problem? It's, it is tough for patients to get on board with the treatment for your problem is to stop eating sugar so much to stop using marijuana to stop smoking. It's tough. Anything that, that stop drinking so much caffeine. Yeah, tons of things like that. Like I'm super anxious. How much caffeine do you drink? You know, six cups of coffee a day. Okay, well, might not be the full solution for anxiety, but uh, you know, maybe maybe cut back to just two uh, and then one. Just see how it does. All right. Just last thing to say on that capsaicin. Um, I think that this is probably more theoretical, but I could be wrong, but it's, it's the, um, application of heat capsaicins as stuff that's in hot peppers. I've used this for like uh, musculoskeletal pain in pregnancy, but, um, the reason that the prescription for cas capsaicin or recommendation for that is included is probably because the, the heat just like a hot shower or blowing a hairdryer on the abdomen. That could be another one. Uh, could alleviate some of that nausea. Um, and then a uh, question on this, is there anything medication-wise that you can give to help people with marijuana cravings? There is not anything that would show up on the boards that is FDA approved. So thank you for that disclaimer, but do you use anything clinically to, uh, or is anybody using anything like experimenting? People use N-acetylcysteine to help with um, marijuana use. But we don't do a lot of that in pregnancy. A lot of it's just that symptomatic management um, and offering of counseling or other um, support services. Gotcha. Have you found any effects in it helping at all? Or Not really. No. Okay. All right. Then moving on. 
All right. So this one, we got a 22 year old, um, Gravita one para zero. She's at 35 weeks estimated gestational age presents to labor and delivery with a three hour history of chest pain, sweating, diaphoresis, nausea, and anxiety. She reports seeing a dire wolf at the hospital entrance. She works in a restaurant and describes her position as very demanding. Blood pressure is 180 over 98. Pulse is 120 beats per minute. Respirations are 20. And her temperature is slightly elevated at 99.9 Fahrenheit. On physical exam, she's restless, agitated, and diaphoretic. Her pupils are dilated. Urine toxicology confirms the most likely diagnosis. Which of the following is the most likely consequence of this patient's most likely diagnosis? A, abruption. B, development of preeclampsia. C, myocardial infarction. Or D, preterm premature rupture of membranes. So this one is kind of the, the classic story, especially you'd see on the boards. Um, you have a pregnant woman, basically she comes in at term. Um, she's got some evidence of hyperautonomic stuff and elevated blood pressure. So you're going to be thinking, oh man, pregnant lady, elevated blood pressure, she's probably got preeclampsia. But urine toxicology confirming the diagnosis is a dead ringer for uh, some sort of substance uh, intoxication. And with some of the findings in the vignette, she's most likely using cocaine or I suppose another sympathomimetic like methamphetamine. And what you'd most likely see if somebody is using cocaine is abruption of the placenta, abruptio placentae. So as I like to tell patients, it's when the the afterbirth likes to tries to deliver before the baby, and it's it the, the consequences of abruption are potentially catastrophic and um, high neonatal mortality and maternal uh, mortality as well uh, when not treated and clinically severe. But the point of this question: uh, cocaine use, abruption. You should connect those two in your mind for board's purposes. But Dr. Poland. Tell us about a little bit about cocaine. So the other thing to remember is cocaine is a vasoconstrictor. So that's kind of the why behind yep. the abruption. Um, and there could be something on board exams asking you to make that leap, right? From, yep. you know, it's abruption and then what causes that abruption. So that's good to know, informa you know information to have. You know, stimulant use in pregnancy, whether it's cocaine or methamphetamine, um, is, is somewhat difficult because we don't have a pharmacological ma management for it, pregnant or otherwise. Um, there's some emerging evidence, but that's not going to show up on boards. So knowing... Like, well, like bupropion? Yeah, you can use bupropion okay. with cocaine use disorder with and with stimulant use disorder, but that's really, really like published in the last six months type of new. Yeah. Um, so we, we wouldn't see that on boards. I don't want to confuse people that. Yeah. Not going to be on boards, but interesting. Uh, pay attention to the future, <laughs> future horizons. I know so much fun. There's so much going on in addiction, but cocaine and intoxication um, has its own kind of syndrome. And that's what this case is about is being able to identify that syndrome and, and looking at that euphoria, that agitation, anxiety, hypertension, tachycardia, elevated blood temp body temperature, and hyperactivity. 
Um, and so, and then that is kind of that whole picture is what she's presenting with. So we want to be able to diagnose the stimulant acute intoxication, which is one of the big things on the board is being able to diagnose different substance intoxications. Um, and then, and then making sure that we are um, recognizing the potential negative consequences of that, which really pregnant or not revolve around that vasoconstriction. So um, that that's kind of the big, the big thing. The other thing that you get with um, can get with cocaine acute intoxication um, is a cocaine induced delirium that results in visual and tactile hallucinations. We often hear the bugs crawling hallucinations is kind of the classic one for cocaine. Oh uh, yeah. Formication. Yes. So you'll see, you'll, you may see that word, that formication or bugs crawling as a big key into this is stimulant use on boards. I think you see that with withdrawal from um, opiates, the formication. You can see hallucinations with withdrawal from opioids, but usually that specific bugs crawling is a cocaine thing. Well, good to know. I think we learned a lot about uh, each of these substances and their relation to pregnancy. Hopefully some things they can take with them to the testing center, but most importantly, uh, things that they can, you know, keep in mind as they progress through training to treat patients with addiction in an evidence-based manner without stigma. That is the goal of this series and the work you do. So thank you, Dr. Kara Poland. The work we do. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> again, pr appreciate this so much. It's always a delight. No, thank you. This is, this is so, this is so much fun to me. This is the kind of crap that I enjoy doing. Awesome. No, thank you. Appreciate it. No problem.